Lasting Media. This episode of Jonah and the Whale is brought to you by ShopCado.com, which is a female-owned corporate and personal gift company. I'm excited to tell you that Jonah and the Whale listeners get 10% off. Just use the promo code Jonah. So express your appreciation and enhance your brand through curated gifts with custom messaging. Be a gift hero at shopcado.com. Promo code Jonah. That's S-H-O-P-C-A-D-E-A-U-X.com. Welcome to Jonah and the Whale. Today we have an incredible show with the legendary Carney Wilson. We cover everything from Wilson Phillips to Playboy Magazine, and of course, Carney's underwater moment, which you won't believe, where she was broke, scared, and going through a medical crisis. It's an incredible story. Let's dive in for Carney's underwater moment. Hi, it's Josh Skinner, and welcome to season four of Jonah and the Well. We have an amazing guest today. It is Carney Wilson, Grammy nominated. I'm fanboying out. I'm in her house right now. Carney, hello. Hi, my dear. Welcome. We've known each other for a while. Uh-huh. So thank you for trusting me. Oh, I do. Yeah. Let's do a quick rundown of who you are. You started as a child of a very famous father, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. Yep. You are now a mother. You're a mother of two. Yep. You're a wife. You are an entrepreneur. You are uh, still a singer. You are still doing amazing things. You're often on the talk. How do you balance everything, especially during uh, you know, a global pandemic? Yeah. And I have a business called Love Bites by Carney that we're we're still, we're still hanging in. We're still holding on. Um, <laughs> no pun intended. No pun intended. Right. No, it's just a lot. You know, I, I, I always, I'm like an octopus. I always have been. I just kind of uh, juggle a lot of things. I, I kind of like that because I feel like it keeps me moving, you know, keeps me on my toes. Cause um, I think just as a, like a recovering addict and alcoholic, like I, I naturally have anxiety and I have to like, I always have that feeling like I have to get something done mm-hmm. and I have to cross that thing off the list. You know what I mean? Like, what do, what do I do next? What do I do next? And it's natural for me to sort of um, know that I still have to get something else done. And just trying to relax is my biggest challenge, I think. You've been doing this for quite some time. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You started Wilson Phillips when you were 18 years old, correct? I did. And then by the time you were 22, you were a global phenomenon and you eventually sold 12 million albums. I know. Tell me about that time in your life. Yeah. Well, uh, I grew up obviously in a musical household and then I became really obsessed with harmony um, at a young age. But like when I turned in my teens, I was like during the free periods at school, I people would, you know, they'd either do some sports or they would go off and, you know, smoke cigarettes or do naughty things. And all I wanted to do was get everybody together to sing harmony like, you know, imitate Fleetwood Mac or the Eagles. And I would say, we hear you come, come sit in a circle and you do this part and you sing the low, you sing the high and you take the melody and I'll take the low. And then it was like, I was, I I just had this weird spiritual connection to three-part harmony. And, um, and I remember when I graduated high school, I barely graduated because I had very poor grades, 
but I was, I was really big in the acting and I loved being on the stage. I loved theater, but I knew that either I got an acting agent and I started going out on auditions, but, um, it was music. It, it was like the CD just came out. Um, I was 18. I was really, really, really smoking a lot of pot. Truthfully, I was a big stoner back then. And I remember, um, one day we just formed Wilson Phillips because China and Mama Cass's daughter, Owen, a dear friend of mine, they came over and they said, we want to do a charity record. We want to get the 60s kids of famous singers together and do a song for charity. We want to sing it and record it and, and then give the money proceeds to charity. And we asked everybody from the Zappas to, you know, um, Donovan's kids and um, Jerry Garcia's kids, but nobody wanted to do it except Wendy, China, Owen, Cass's daughter, Mama Cass's daughter, and China and I. And so we we just were like, okay, well then we'll just do it, you know? Um, and then we, we were like, well, well, what do we do? And I said, well, let's just start singing, you know? And I'm like, well, let's sing harmony. It was like, that was a natural thing. And so we just, on my sister's floor, we would take a bong hit and then we would just harmonize. And, um, and then we formed, we formed Wilson Phillips, uh, within days, we were just obsessed with the sound that came out. Uh, I always look at Wilson Phillips as kind of like a one, one full sound. Like there's Wendy on the high, China in the middle, me on the low, but that particular sound of us singing together is one sound. And that sound brought my mom downstairs in the middle of our singing. And she was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? What are we doing? We're singing. And she goes, do you know what you guys sound like together? And we were like, yeah, we sound fucking great. You know? And she was like, no, this is not, this is, this is beyond. And all of a sudden China calls her mom. And she's like, mom, we got a great sound. What do we do? And Michelle, you know, mamas and mamas and papas, Michelle Phillips is like, call my producer friend, Richard Perry. He's worked with Carly Simon and Barbara Streisand, the Pointer Sisters. He knows the Pointer Sisters, their harmony. Why don't you call Richard? And Richard brought us to Glenn Ballard, our songwriter, our collaborator and producer. And we just took off from there. Once we met Glenn, we were, it was solidified. We were songwriters. We got a record deal. And it was, you know, 1986 until 1990 that we were writing songs and perfecting the sound getting a record deal. And from 90 to 92, we just didn't stop. That was a very long answer. So from 90 to 92, you were just on fire. When did you know that you were a success? Well, uh, there's a couple moments. One, riding in the car. We were in the middle of like Memphis and they were like, you guys are selling 100,000 records a week. Wow. And we were like, What? We couldn't believe it. We we were very humbled by that. We actually, we were we were we weren't like yeah yeah we got this. You know, it was more like, are you serious? Oh my God, we're so grateful. I, I just remember feeling this enormous like gratitude. Like, how could people support us like that? That's incredible. But I think the real defining moment for me was. We were in Japan doing something called the Tokyo Music Festival. There's the award right on the shelf, that big award right there. Wow. It's so heavy, that award. 
And when they handed it to me, I, I didn't know how heavy it was. And I almost like dropped it. It was so heavy, but we did win the Tokyo Music Festival and, that year. But while we were there doing this really prestigious, you know, uh, show and award show and contest, um, by the way, we competed against the Beach Boys. That was a little awkward, <laughs> but- um, And you won. And we won, yeah. Um, but I remember Bobby McFerrin was like, you know his song, Don't Worry, Be Happy? He was not happy that he lost. That's all I'm going to say to you. He was so fucking pissed. <laughs> not happy so in Japan. He was not happy. Don't worry, be happy. No, no. Anyway, um, but um, we were. It was the middle of the night, and I remember the phone ringing, and it was like 3 a.m. And I was in my hotel room, and I remember the president of SBK Records at that time, Charles Koppelman. He said. You did it, baby. You're number one. I'll never forget those words. And I started screaming and crying at the same time. I, I, I would cry, then I would scream. Then I would cry, then I would scream. And Wendy, Wendy was next door to me. All she, she said she heard this crazy person screaming. And then she realized it was me. And of course, you know, I called her, Wendy, Wendy, Charles called me. Hold on, hit number one. You know, we knocked Vogue, Madonna's <gasps> Vogue out of the slot. And it was very surreal, very surreal. Whoa. Well, what was that like to knock Madonna out of number one? Did you freak? That made me feel fucking badass at that time. <laughs> that did. I mean, I was like, wait a minute, <laughs> we rock, you know, we did it. It was, that was just like, but still surreal. It's all surreal. Yeah. Do you love that song? I mean, it's your most famous song. Like, what does that song mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I I love all of our songs, and I and I I have a I have a soft spot for "Release Me." I, I do, but um, "Hold On" is, you know, I think it it was always a great record, and and when we first the record company, I think they wanted to release they wanted to release "Release Me" first, but we fought them and said we don't want to release a ballad for the first single. We knew we had multiple singles because they said to us, you have multiple singles on this. And we were like, okay, whatever you say, great. You know, um, but we had written, we wrote all of our songs that we released um, and hold on. We knew had a great kind of driving chorus and a great positive message, but it wasn't until, I mean, it actually took a long time for that song to gain traction. I have to tell you. Not really? everybody. Yeah. It took a long time. It took months and months and months of promotion for these program directors. Cause back in the day you had to go to the station, you had to go to the radio station. You had to, you know, kiss, kiss the program director's ass, go to lunch with him, you know, tell him he's the, has the greatest station ever. And hopefully, you know, they would say, okay, they added the record. And it was, it was a bunch of bullshit is what it was. It was way political weird, but we knew we had a hit record because what would happen is that they would say, all right, some of them added it right away, but you, like the P2 was P1, P2s and P3s. That's the way it was, right? Well, our goal was to get all the P1s because they were the most influential. The P3s and P2s, they added the record, but getting P1s was a challenge. So we would go and, you know, if you got one, like, let's say you got kiss, kiss in New York, then you're set for the whole tri-state area. And then if you got this one out, if you got coast in LA, KOST, then you were set with all, all the other ones. So we remember 
some of them just saying, well, we'll give it a spin, literally. We'll play it at 2 a.m. and see what happens. Well, people were going crazy. Wow. So they would start, you know, more spins, more spins. And that, you know, that brings you up the charts for the radio charts. And then of course, sales is on the charts is a combination of sales and spins and the whole thing. But it was just like, it was a weird, it was a weird thing because we knew the the music was strong. We knew that, you know, we had a sound, there's three girls and, and like Expose had already had, I think some hits and the Go-Go's did, but and the bangles and everything. And we feel like they led the way for sure. But we had something kind of like the, the, the pop Dixie chicks kind of thing. You know, we had a sound and we had pop music with catchy tunes, with good, you know, lyrics people could relate to. And I think that's ultimately what, I think that's what did it. I think that's what our music is. It's just catchy pop with a, with a cool harmony sound and lyrics that you can relate to. We didn't have social media back then. Uh, how did you hear from your fans and your haters? Oh, yeah. So we had um, we had a fan club. <laughs> we had the Wilson Phillips fan club, and Wendy and I used to sit in my apartment. I was I was about nineteen years old, and um, we used to we used to get these, you know, piles and piles of letters. We would open up the letters and we would read them. We would cry our eyes out. Because back then it was like, you know, they would write, I, um, you know, I was suicidal and I, I, I didn't do it because I heard, hold on. And Mm -hmm. you saved my life. And Wendy and I were, it really hit me like, this is, this is more than just having, you know, a hit record. This is like having an influence on someone. And that is extremely powerful. And that has lasted for 30 goddamn years. Wow. And it's even more now. The appreciation is more, the 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 meaning of the music is more. Everything is is heightened because we need that more than ever now. But it, it was back then too. And we were so young. I mean, I was 23 when we when we were reading these letters. I mean, what did I know? I was just, you know, going through growing up. And, you know, um, I remember we would call people randomly from these letters. We'd pick a number, we'd pick a letter and we would go, okay, let's call this person. And they never believed it. We would say, hi, it's, it's Carney Wendy Wilson from Wilson Phelps. They would go, no, it's not. We said, we, we got your number. We have your number right here from the letter. Here's your fan letter. We'd read it to them and they would burst into tears, you know, and it was so great. It was just so great. And so that's how we communicated. And, and, you know, the, the bullying thing, I mean, oh, yeah, yeah, that was really more of the media. And that's a whole other, that's a whole hour right there. Uh, the amount of um, discrimination that I had, the bullying and the, 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 the way that, oh, God, I was just put Be- into this, you know. Because of your weight? Yeah. I, I just, I couldn't. I could not get past it. It just, nobody, I mean, I could get past it. Everybody that knew us could get past it. When you listen to the record, I don't sound fat. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck does that, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like- What would they say? What would the media say? Carney Wilson is fat? Oh God, it was, it was just, it was awful. I mean, it was the fat one, um, you know, the, 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 the two pretty ones and the fat one, um, music videos, they would hide me. They would, they would do everything they, they, they could to just not show my body. And, um, you know, and the hard part is that, 
you know, the, the guy that used to make our videos, he's still a, such a good friend of mine, Jeff Panzer. And he, he always would say to me, you know, I got to give the company what they want, but you, you are beautiful. And you know what, Carney, your, your eyes shine. So when I film you, I'm giving them what they want because I have to. He was always straight up with me. And to be honest with you, I was so self-conscious back then because I was labeled, you know, and I, cause in my core, I didn't give a fuck. I was like, let's sing, let's do what we do. But, oh yeah, I'm, 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 you know, unattractive to everybody. So that was, that was on me, you know? Um, and I'm 52 now, so I've learned a lot since then, but it was like, he would always, you know, if you've noticed these videos, a lot of them was from the neck up, you know? And then when I had my lead first lead vocal uh, on a single, it was called the dream is still alive. You know, they, 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 they showed me, but it was still limited. Um, but truthfully, I always liked the way the way I looked in the videos. I thought we looked great. They're iconic. The whole, whole on video is famous. Um, so many different locations. You know, I, I know we had great directors. Oh my God, we did. But I, um, you know, I remember when we shot a video for the second record, that's when things got kind of, I don't know if you want to say sour or, you know, dark, but it was the, the shadows and light that the follow-up record was, was very personal. And we had some therapy in between. We were just like, you know, we just got out of high school. We went right into the group and then we released the record and we were off traveling the world. And then when the second record hit, it was like our eyes opened up to a lot of personal things that we went through in our, in our lives. And so we actually had started therapy. All three of us did. And a lot came out in therapy and we wrote about it. And that's what that second record is. And it's, there, there's some real dark darkness on that record, but it's not, that's why we called it Shadows and Light, you know? Um, but really it's a beautiful album. And, but it, when I listen to it, I get very, very sad because it was the last record we made together. You know, it was 14 years until we made another record. But um, I've always been very uh, defensive with critics and I've always stood up for myself. And, uh, you know, and I've been very protective of my sister too. Um, when Wendy and I, China left the group and that was devastating, but she just needed to do a solo record. It was like, okay, whatever, go ahead. You know, what are you going to do? She, she just left and we had to support her, but I, I was very angry for years and years. But Wendy and I, the record company said, well, you know, screw it. Just do a, do a record together. So we went and did Hey Santa which is a Christmas song that's played every year on the radio. And that's 23 years old, or 30, wait a minute, no. How many years? 30 years old? 27 years old. Hey, Santa's 27 years old. So it's like that, I'm really proud of that record, by the way. <laughs> but I remember when we released a record, me and Wendy, it was an album we did. My dad's on the record. We worked with Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics. It was called The Wilsons. It was a great record. And... um we promoted it. We went on the Rosie O'Donnell show. And I remember there was a critic that said, Wendy's voice sounds like an open throat of a wound. I think that's what he said. Something like that. Something horrible. And I got the name. I saw the reporter's name and I called him up. No, you didn't. Yeah, I did. I wow. called him and I said, hi, fucker. I said, it's Carney Wilson. And he goes, uh, hi. I said, uh-huh. Hi. 
I said, I just want to tell you something. I said, my sister has the most beautiful voice and all those high parts you hear and all the stuff that millions of people love, that's Wendy. And I said, and you're a fucking asshole. And I said, and if I had a dick, I would shove it down your throat and choke you with it. So don't you ever say anything bad about my sister again. That's what I said to him. <laughs> what did he say? It, he went, uh, 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 he, couldn't, he couldn't even talk. He just stuttered. Uh, well, I, uh, uh, I went, fuck you. Goodbye. So in terms of the critics, it's like you, somebody's always not going to like you. Somebody's always going to love you. And you have to let the ones that put you down, you just have to let it roll off your back and say, that's your opinion. You know, um, how did you go from being, I, I just hate using the word fat. I hate, you know, being a poster child of a fat singer to going into playboy. Like that's such a huge, huge change, <laughs> not only physically, but mentally and right. publicly. So before we, I know we need to go into your underwater moment, but let's talk about that because that's a huge transition from everything you just shared. I know. I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot happened from that that time of Wilson Phillips to that moment when they called and said, you know, when my manager said, Playboy wants you to, Playboy wants you. And I said, what? I, I said, are you, are you talking to the right person? And he goes, of course. I was, I, I didn't believe it at first. Actually, I thought I was being punked. But- um, I would too. Yeah. I, I mean, it was, it was very weird. And but, you know, I had um, reached a very low bottom in my life and um, decided that, you know, my health was more important. It was never vanity ever. Um, I always had boyfriends. I had men. I had success. I had love. I had all of that, but I didn't have my health. And that's what I was losing. I was losing my health. And I hit a rock bottom and I decided to have a, you know, gastric bypass to help me uh, control the amount of food I would eat. And it did, it worked. And I lost 160 pounds and I became like a different, um, just different person. It was, I, it was so, the physical change was so radical that I did not know who I was anymore. I remember I met my husband at my heaviest weight and I said to him, I, I'm three months away from doing this surgery. Should I do it? And he goes, is it going to save your life? And I said, yeah. And he said, do it. And Rob went through it with me and, you know, I had lost in a year and a half, I had lost 160 pounds. And so um, when Playboy called, I was like, you know, the money was great. And the story behind it was amazing. They had never had a story like that ever. And- um, Meaning women's empowerment, liberation, change. Change, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just kind of like, this is an amazing story because- if you want something, look at what you can do. You can change yourself. And, um, you know, that I felt, I felt, I felt attractive, but I didn't really feel like me. It, it was an unfamiliar, it was an unfamiliar feeling to feel like desired physically. I had guys that were chubby chasers and didn't give a shit about my weight, but it was more like, I was kind of put into the category of like, you look hot, you know, and um, that was very, very foreign and scary to me. 
And so- Because how you feel inside yeah. is still the same, right? Before yeah. you got the surgery, like that doesn't change. Well, your, your head just, it, you need time to catch up. You know, mm. I mean, like, that's why I think when people lose weight really fast, when they lose a lot, when they lose a lot of weight really fast, they need psychological help with it. They need to, to you know, it, it goes hand in hand because it, it it's like you need to have somebody almost caressing you the whole time saying, you're still you, you're still you, you're still you. And, uh, you know, I would just cry and sob on Rob's chest at night and go, I don't know who I am. I don't know who I am. I mean, it was really... I used to hold the pictures of my old body at 310 pounds and look at the the pictures, you know, of me at 150 pounds or 145. And I would go, and I would sob. I would go, who is that girl? She's so unhappy. Like, like she was like dead. And my, and my therapist at the time, he was like, you got to grieve her. You got to say goodbye to her. And I know that's like, kind of like whatever the word is, like not hoity. Um, it makes sense though. Well, yeah. You know, it sounds like kind of corny, but like, you got to grieve her, you know, very like therapy-esque, but it was, I did. And I, and so. Um, did you miss her? Because I, I know that sounds no, like a weird question. No, I didn't. Okay. I was scared of her. Mm. Like she was so, like it, it felt like it was so out of control, but I wasn't comfortable with the way I looked like quote now. So that's when I started drinking because I couldn't, I was always a stoner. You know, and then pot got so strong, I just kind of like stopped smoking it because I'd get too paranoid. But I started to drink alcohol because I just couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't handle my feelings. Take me to that first day on set of Playboy because that's a that's kind of a, a mess up your mind a little bit, right? To be like, now I'm just naked in front of all these people. <laughs> oh my god, it was so it was so funny. There was a camera guy. I mean, you just have to be very free with your body. And so it was very weird for me to just kind of like let it all go. But they had me very drunk. Mm. This is right before I got sober. I was absolutely wasted. I mean, I had so much vodka. They, they like to liquor you up. The minute you walk in, they hand you wine. They, they were like, what do you want to drink? Okay, here's wine. And they get you loose right away. But they had a beautiful set for me. It was a four-day shoot. I had hair and makeup from head to toe. Six hours of hair and makeup. Six hours to get ready. And um, head when you mean head to toe, like they would to they would put makeup on your fingers. Oh, every toe, every every square inch of your body had makeup on it. And they were very specific about stuff. Very specific. Um, colors, shade, darkness, this, that, the hair, every curl, every everything. And um, they made these beautiful, beautiful corsets and they had robes and they had, um, <clears throat> they had a set where they had me hanging off like, like I was draped like a piece of fabric on these stairs and I was like hanging upside down and like, and I did feel beautiful. I felt really, I felt, it wasn't like, wasn't really sexual. It was more like, you know, the way I see a woman's body, like her breasts are beautiful, a woman's curves, her, her legs, her skin, her, the feminine, the, the, a woman's body it was so beautiful. And I had never embraced any of that. Cause I was always so self-conscious, like my inner thighs are ripply or my, you know, my stomach's hanging out or, and, and I didn't have really, I didn't, my stomach was flat and my breasts were 
upright. You know, I had my boobs done. They were, I had implants put in. They were, they were facing up, you know, and yes, I had like loose skin on my arms and, you know, but I had just had a tummy tuck to take care of some loose skin there. And I, I was still insecure about certain parts of my body, but overall it was like the ultimate fantasy had, was real, but I was absolutely drunk. (laughs) And all I wanted were the pictures to be gorgeous. And we would, we would, take a, a few pictures, me in a different setting. We would run to the computer and they would start retouching right there, right then and there retouching. And that, cause that's what they do. They retouch everything. And right in front of your eyes, they start. And I couldn't believe how pretty the pictures were. And it was all about, are you going to show your puss or not? It, that's all they, because it, it was like, you get paid more money. You, it was a bigger deal if it's boobs only, or if you're going to show. And I said to them, this is really vile, but I said, no, like just the hair part, nothing else. And I said, and I want it kind of shadowed. I don't want it to be very visible. And they kept their word. And we did a very tasteful, tasteful photo shoot. Um, so did you get the higher price or the lower price? I got or the half, higher price. Good for you. Yeah. My puss got the higher price. <laughs> my, my, my little strip, my little landing strip. <laughs> Gave me an extra hundred grand, probably. <laughs> her, her landing strip has an agent now. <laughs> oh God, that's funny. That's hysterical. I know. Good for you for negotiating that. <laughs> well, I demanded it. I mean, because they were like, you know, are you going to do that or not? And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's kind of, you know, is it too far? Like, you know, it's not a hustler. I'm not sitting there spread eagle. Yeah. It's has. To, I said it. It's got to be tasteful. You know, I wasn't full nude. It was not full nudity. That wasn't what my shoot was. It was almost like a tease, you know, like beautiful corsets and sort of like not, not, it it was just like a beautiful boudoir, you know, what would be your ultimate experience? Well, light the candles, put on a gorgeous, you know, some lingerie and just like tease your man. That's right. Classy sensual. It was like French meets, you know. It wasn't pornographic. It wasn't. It was really lovely. And I'm proud of those pictures. I really am. I have to ask you because you have two daughters now right. um, and you're proud of them. How, how do you explain that to you, to your girls today? I told them that I posed for Playboy. I said, I, I, I showed my, my breasts and, you know, and parts of my body. And, you know, I felt really empowered doing this because I was always so ashamed of myself and it made me feel free. It was very liberating. And, you know, sometimes I feel like, well, am I, am I embarrassed by this? But uh, not really because if it was cheesy and gross, yeah, maybe. If it was a porno, you know, and I'm, you know, that's different. But this was tasteful and there was something behind it. It was an inspiration. And and I think the girls, you know, I... This was a few years ago that I told them and they were just kind of like, oh, they, they don't, I don't think they really, I haven't shown it to them, but they might be embarrassed later or they might be like, good for mom, you know? Well, you're pretty unfiltered. So I'm sure just the way you presented yeah, it right. make, makes it like, oh, okay, whatever. This is mom. Exactly. You know? I mean, I, I will always, I've always been upfront with them and honest. They know about my addictions. They know that I had a problem with alcohol. They know that I'm in recovery. They know that I, that I fuck up and I apologize. I make amends. They know I'm a human Mm. and it's, it's helping them, you know, be more forgiving of themselves. I think overall in general, you know. 
Well, when we come back after this commercial break, we are going to hear more moments of being human with Carney Wilson. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Josh. It's always hard for me to find the perfect gift, but then I found shopkado.com. Shopkado has premium customized gifts for all your personal and corporate gift giving needs. If you have a business, Shopkado has the perfect gifts for your employees, customers, and events. I have to tell you, I love the detail and presentation for each order. It's beautiful and it reminds me that the appeal is really in the reveal. My favorite gift is the wine time. So express your appreciation and enhance your brand through curated gifts with custom messaging. Jonah and the Whale listeners get 10% off. Just use the promo code Jonah. Be a gift hero and give with intention at shopkado.com. That's S-H-O-P-C-A-D-E-A-U-X.com. We are back with the legendary Carney Wilson. Now, Carney, before we jump into uh, your underwater moment and we find out your triumph through tragedy, on a personal note, when I was 15 years old, I don't want to get choked up right now. I was uh, homeschooled and, uh, you know, being going through puberty and living in Hawaii, it kind of added a few things to my world that was very overwhelming. So uh, half the week I had homeschooled by myself at the church and the other half I do it at home. And on those days, your talk show was uh, on that year. And it, uh, it it was something I enjoyed watching because just how you are today with me, you were very authentic and real and you had that gift of gab. And you were one of those talk show hosts that uh, planted a seed in my soul to help me where I'm at today. So I wanna say thank you. Oh God, you're so sweet. You're so, you're all the way across the room, but I can see your eyes tearing. You're such a sweet soul, God. Thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. What was that experience like to have your own national talk show? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, to know that it affects, it affected someone like that. It affected you like that. That, that makes anything worth it to me. Um, yeah, I was one of 22 new shows that year. So I was in the, that bag and it was silly. It was just silly. I, I never got to really do the show that I wanted to. I didn't get to be myself. I wanted to say the F word. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, tell the wife beater he was a piece of shit, but I couldn't do that. I wasn't allowed. And, but you know, it was, um, it was good because it was, I had to just pick my life up and move to New York, wow. you know, and I was 25 years old and I was with my fiance at the time, um, you know, and we just were like, this is so exciting. We're just going to do this. And I remember, um, you know, I, I, my, my, my main supervising producer is Andy Lassner from Ellen. I mean, Andy would come in the, would make me laugh every day. It was a great experience to be in New York city and do this. It was only one year. We taped 155 shows and it was fun, but it was, they kept trying to mold me and to be something else. But then they told, they hired me. They said, we're hiring you because we love you and we want you to be you. But then every time I would be me, they would say, tone, tone it down. Don't be so opinionated. You know, I wore the IFB and my producer, Kathy Chermel was the best. And she heard me on Howard Stern and said to, um, 
Jim Paratori, the late Jim Paratori from Telepictures at the time, I just heard Carney Wilson on Howard Stern and she, you need to give her a talk show. So I'm, I'm forever grateful to, to Kathy, but let me tell you, Kathy was in my ear screaming in my ear, go to prompter. Cause I would just be like, oh yeah, you, you beat your wife. Well, you're a piece of shit. I mean, I, I used to say that and they would get so pissed at me. <laughs> Because I couldn't hold back, you know. Well, nor should you. Right. See, now we need that show. You need, exactly. You, you need the Carney show with an exclamation point <laughs> now at 52. Because now you're, you're like, I'm going to serve you some mama. <laughs> I know. Here comes mama. Let me tell you right now. That would be great. But yeah, it, it was fun. I mean, I, I I got to ride on the train. It was short-lived, but I got to do it. Well, 155 episodes. That's a lot of work. It is. It was very, it was very quick. And I remember when they... They named the street Carney Way. They they changed the street name. It was really cool. The mayor, you know, they 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 had a little little ceremony. It was really fun. But I'm grateful for that talk show because my husband Rob now, my husband, he used to watch the talk show. And when I met him the first day I ever met him, um, it was in Philadelphia. We were at a naval base and I was doing a show, and he was like, "I it's great to meet." We were backstage, and he's like, "It's great to meet you." And I used to watch your talk show. And I really enjoyed watching you. And I was like, thank you. You know, and, and then the rest is history with Rob, but it, he watched the show too. So I, I don't know. I think some people enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, it obviously made an impact on my yeah. life. So I'm grateful. Let's jump in. Uh, the show is called Jonah and the Whale because sometimes there's moments in our life that seem so overwhelming that it can feel like we're literally drowning underwater. You've had many moments in your life that obviously have been painful which one stands out for today's show? Oh boy. I think when you talk about like a, a, a scary moment or like a light bulb moment or a life-changing moment, for me, it was all three in one. And it was the day that I woke up and I could not move the right side of my face. I was 300. I, I went on the scale and I, and I pushed it to three, 304, 308. And it was, it was, I, I could, I had to keep going. And I went, don't tell me I weigh over 300 pounds. I couldn't believe it. And that was the time of my life. I was working at a needlepoint store. I was trying to support myself. I wasn't really doing anything. Wait, wait, wait. We have to back up for a quick second. You've been, you've sold 12 million albums. How are you at a needlepoint store working? Right. Because I, was I made shitty investments. I spent all my money. I spent, you know, $55,000 on paint in my, to paint my house inside. I spent 25 grand on corsets for Wilson Phillips to make our videos seriously for that second album. And I would spend money like crazy. I bought tons of jewelry, Louis Vuitton furniture. And it's like, it added up. And I bought, I bought an expensive house and it was, before I knew it, it was gone. And and so I, I wasn't working and it, it was years. I wasn't working and I, I was obsessed with needlepointing. And the truth is I wanted to just have free needlepoint. And so I would, my paychecks would actually not help my bills, but I it wound up paying for my needlepoint habit. <laughs> and so- Wait, did they know that you were Carney Wilson though? Of course, of course. And customers would come in and then they would sign up to take a class because I was there. Then I started teaching class and we had, we had people coming in and we would talk and laugh and we loved it. It was so fun. But Where was this? This was called Laney's Needlepoint in, in uh, Sherman Oaks, California. And I worked there for, I was there for a year. I was obsessed with Needlepoint. 
and it helped me calm down. It was, it was, you know, a great, this is before I started drinking. I was just, I needed something to do. I wasn't really cooking. I mean, I started to cook a little bit, but I wasn't, I didn't find my thing. My thing back then was needlepoint. So how much was your check or hourly? I'm just curious. I, I don't even, it was nothing. I mean, maybe I would get like 500 bucks for the week, Wow. you know, or something like that, but every penny went to it. But anyway, um, I was at this point in my life. I was, uh, you know, my fiance and I broke up. I was living alone. I was at my heaviest weight. I was choking in my sleep. I had sleep apnea. I didn't know it. I had back problems. I had, I mean, my blood pressure was high. I had reflux and uh, circulation problems. I'd wake up, I couldn't feel my legs. And it was one thing after the other and my heart would race. And one day I woke up I got out of bed and I was brushing my teeth and I was like, I can't move my fucking lips. I can't move the right side. I went, oh my God, I can't blink my eye. I can't move. I said, I'm having a stroke. And that moment I was like, and, and now that I look back, I always think to myself, that was my stop and f- literally freeze. Like my fro- my face froze and I was literally saying, freeze, take a snapshot of your life right now because this is this is it. You are going to die if you don't take care of your health. And it was extremely powerful. First of all, I was terrified. I didn't know what it was. So I called my doctor. He's like, you have Bell's palsy. I'm like, what the fuck is Bell's palsy? It was a whole nerve thing in the ear with the seventh cranial nerve and your muscles freeze. And you know, I never heard of this before. And turns out I started talking with friends. Everybody knows somebody that's had Bell's palsy. But you have to act on it fast. So I went on the Valtrex. I had chicken pox as a child. So they said, you have the virus in your body, all the stress, because I was stressed. And the stress brought the virus active. And then a, a, a wind, a sudden wind, they say, can activate it. I had that wind. I had the pain in my ear. And at the needlepoint store, I felt my lip quivering. And I woke up the next day and that's when my face was frozen. So I actually did do... One job, I was acting as Mama Earth on the NBC miniseries called The 60s with Julia Stiles and, and uh, what's his name again? Oh, I forgot his, oh, Jeremy Sisto. And, and it was a great miniseries and it was like, a, it was amazing. And I played Mama Earth and um, I had to walk the red carpet. It was terrible timing, but my Bell's palsy took three, sorry, six weeks to go away. And I had to walk the red carpet <laughs> um, at my heaviest weight, my half my face frozen. And there's, if you look on the internet, there's a picture, I found it. Oh my God, it's frightening with half a smile, half a face. It, it looks really weird. Bell's palsy is very scary if you, I mean, it's really scary. Um, and I've helped a lot of people through it. And if anybody listening has it or you've known or whatever, you can always contact me because I, I have a lot of tips and I have a lot of faith I can give you because it's a real scary thing to go through. And ironically, 14 years later, I got it again on the other side. But but back to that moment of that was my catalyst for the change that I needed in my life. And it was a frightening moment, but it was the best moment I could ever have had. Talk about that fear. What was that like? Did you just, did you think it, it really was it? You were gone. I thought I was having a stroke and that, that God was saying, you're done. 
and you are, you are going, you're not going to make it. And I had a little, I had almost like a, a, a sliver of this the year before when I was 29 years old, when I was performing on stage and I got off the stage, I was, I remember dancing on the stage and it was, it was kind of, it was a party. It was like a corporate gig and it was with Beach Boy Al Jardine and we were singing like Surfing USA was the encore. We were doing Fun, 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 Surfing USA. And they had a stage that they brought in. So it was kind of one of those like box stage, you know, that, that is kind of like lifted off the ground by like, you know, four feet or three feet, whatever. And I remember bouncing on the stage and the whole stage was moving because I was so heavy that I was making everybody bounce on the stage when I was bouncing. And I remember when I was actually doing it, like, okay, you're making the stage bounce. Um, but I didn't want to stop because I was having fun. And I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to dance, you know? Okay. We're moving. We're, 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 we're rocking and rolling here, you know? But I got off the stage and I had this pain in my arm that I had never experienced. And my heart started racing. And I thought, oh fuck, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And I said, somebody please get me a glass of water. I, I, I can't. They were like, let's go backstage and talk to everybody. I couldn't do that. And that was that was the the prelude, you know, to the real big moment. And so when I found out it, it was Bell's palsy and stuff, I I just uh that was that was it. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, this is it. I'm I can't do this anymore. And um, you know, there was some intervention. Um, a manager of mine, he, he brought me to this company and we, he was like, I'm, I'm involved with this amazing thing. It's, it, it's not, it doesn't exist any longer, but it was called a doctor in your house. And it was like, people were sharing their, like Roger Moore was sharing stories and different celebrities were sharing their physical ailments. And he's like, they want you to come on and have a gastric bypass live on the internet. And I went, are you nuts? I'm not doing that. And he's like, Carney, you're going to inspire a lot of people if you do this. And, you know, I wasn't paid. There's no pay. It was the doctor. The doctor, um, my insurance covered my procedure. Um, I went in in San Diego to an amazing surgeon. And I, (laughs) you know, they didn't show the insides of my body, but they showed me like from a distance on the table and it was live during the surgery. Like, okay, here we go. Carney's in, you know, and they did all these statistics and, but gastric bypass has been around for many years. It's been around for 50 years, but it was called stomach stapling back then. And I had it laparoscopically and it was very advanced. Even 20 years ago, it was advanced because it's been 20 years. It's been 21 years. But, you know, that moment when I thought I was having a stroke at the age of 30, you know, I knew that something had to change. And it's, it's, you know, I had met my fiance, Rob. I met my boyfriend, Rob, that year. And we went through all this together. And he watched me, you know, he met me at my heaviest weight. And he, um, he told me he lived in Philadelphia and I lived in LA. And as I was going through this kind of change, this, this, you know, discovering that I needed to get healthy, he was holding my hand through the whole thing. And, you know, I really, I don't know if I could have done it without him. Cause I, I, I knew I was going to take on a lot because I had tried for 30 years, for 25 years, I was started gaining weight at five years old. So for 25 solid years, every single year I was trying to lose weight and I couldn't do it. And it was, was getting, it would go up and down, up and down. 
And so when, when that, when I finally made up my mind, it was from a very scary moment that actually like busted open the doors of like self-care really. How does your, your spirit and your mind catch up to what's happening so fast physically? A lot of personal connection with other people, with other patients. Mm. I was really, um, I had a great, great group of people. We had support groups. We lost weight together. We faced the challenges together. We had little side effects. Some of us had bigger, some of us had little. Um, I had a nurse. Uh, I call her my angel. She's my dear friend, Leslie Jester, who's also a patient. And she took me through the whole thing. I mean, she was great. And, you know, I love nurses and they don't get enough credit. Um, They just don't. But, you know, I had to find my own um, acceptance that what I was really scared to do and realizing, because this really goes into psychological stuff about having weight on your body. And right now I'm still, you know, 75 pounds up from that. You know, I'm still half the, I still lost half my weight. I'm not, you know, today I weigh 225, but I'm not 310. So yes, of course I want to get down to 170, 160. But, you know, psychologically, losing a lot of weight, I don't, I, the truth is I don't know. I want to lose weight again to be healthy and be healthier because I'm getting older, you know? But psychologically, it's a whole other bag. And I need to have someone hold my hand through it because it's still food and my protection is, I still have those issues. I still have them. Let's talk about protection. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I I don't know. I, I think... Maybe I just label it and just, maybe it's just an excuse and just like, oh, it's my protection. But, oh, fuck. I think if I just, I mean, I've had a lot of therapy, you know? Um, I used to, I mean, I just became such a drunk that I just, I mean, I could not feel one feeling. And I've been sober for like 16 years. I have not had a joint or a drink in 16 fucking years. And, you know, I used to mask all those feelings, but it's like food is like the only thing left that if I feel anxious, which is a lot, the pressures of life, money, believe it or not, children, I mean, raising children, it's hard. And in the world today. And expensive. And expensive, right. You know, the pressure's on, and for someone like me, who, who can take a lot of pressure at one time, like I can work five jobs. It doesn't mean that I'm not at the end of the day f- trying to find a way to calm down. So it's taking a bath, it's cooking, it's baking, it's connecting with people. Like I am a communicator. I have to connect, whether it's laughing with my children, talking with my husband, singing, talking with, with just people on social media. It's a whole different world now. It's very easy to isolate. It's very easy to reach out. Mm. You know, we have so, there's so much accessible 
stuff and resources. We have resources now. Up the yin-yang. We just have to be able to grab them. And and I think now more than ever, because we are so open about mental illness or anxiety disorders or any of that, I mean, put me in all the categories if you want. That's fine. You can diagnose me and say, I have OCD or I have depression. I've always had a chronic mild depression, but you know, I feel like we're so easy to kind of like, we're so quick. We're so eager to find the quick solution that we just don't want to deal with the issues. And I'm still dealing with the goddamn issues. I'm still dealing with a father that never showed me love, but I know he loves me. We've been through a lot of healing together, but it's, it's like, I think when I finally accept that, you know, we make our own bed, we make our own bed. And what I've learned in my life is that we have the power to do more than we think. We have more inner strength than we even realize. And I've been put to the test. I, you know, the proof's in the pudding. You know, I've, that day, I mean, when you, fa- when you go back to that day when I had what I thought was having a stroke, you know, and I was like, okay, this is symbolic. God is saying to me, freeze, look at your life. You know, it was like, okay, now what? Well, it, it, it was inevitable. It, change. Change had to come. And it did. But nobody did it for me. I did it. But do you feel like God and the universe was forcing you to change? Absolutely. Do I'm, you think there were small whispers before? Do you think a year ago dancing on the stage was God's wink saying, hey, Carney, this is a God wink, just saying, listen up. Sure. Do you think there were others before then that you just weren't paying attention to? No, I, I don't because I never really had close calls like that. Mm. It was, it was, you know, I'm not saying I didn't have struggles or or anything, you know, no, there were, there were challenges, of course. I mean, oh my God, I mean, try flying to five cities a day and meet and going to six different radio stations every single day for three months straight. I mean, I thought I was going to lose my fucking mind, you know, but I was young. I could handle it. You know, there was no like relationships, no kids. It was like, that was my one focus. And I had, I had stopped smoking the pot during that time. I wasn't drinking. So I was ready to go. I mean, I'm born with a lot of energy, you know, and there's a little inner fire that's always been there. And I, it, it probably came from my mom. She's extremely positive person. I instill these things in my kids, but you know, yeah, I I do believe that we need to listen to our inner our, our inner voice. And that's my first book that I wrote was called Gut Feelings. And that's what that was about. It was about listening to your gut. And I believe, God, I believe in that. Oh my God. I mean, inst- instincts and those feelings that we have and those inner voices, people are so scared of them, but they they scream at them all day long, but they just ignore them. And I listened at that time. I think it's really interesting that you just said a lot of us look for the fastest solution to our pain. And I know that there's a lot of people that listen to the show because they're hurting right now. And often we want that fast solution. So what would you say to somebody who's at that place of heartache and they just don't want to feel like that anymore? You know, 
I think the single, single most important thing is, you know, hope and that there has to be, to me, hope equals faith. And we're so hard on ourselves because even if something happens in our life that's tragic and it's not our fault and it quote happened to us, you know, we're victims, it's, it's happened, you know, it, we can go into victim land and it's like, we won't ever, we won't ever come out of it. If we, if we just look at things as life lessons, I think that we will be less hard on ourselves, ourselves, because that means that we're learning a lesson. It might be a constant learning experience, but we're moving forward and we're not going to stay stifled or stuck. We're not going to stay stuck in that, um, you know, in that feeling, that emotion, that problem, because we wind up attributing, well, this happened to me, so that's why I'm this way. This happened to me, so that's why I don't have this, or I don't have this, or, or, you know, and I think that, you know, the most powerful tool we have is our own, is our own will. You know, I mean, it's like, you, it's like being, it's like being, it's the opposite of lazy and complacency and familiarity because you can, People that, to me, people that constantly focus on their problems, I don't think they have as many problems as they think. Everybody has problems and everybody's been through shit. But I, I believe that, you know, I have to, today, I have to pray to a higher power that's going to keep me sober, that's going, that I'm going to know that I have, that my higher power is holding me like like two hands, like, like it's a safety net. It's a net, you know, there's some force that's going to take care of me. And people just need to stay as positive as possible and know that there are, it is possible to become positive. I really believe we're more powerful than we think. Change is scary, but we can embrace it. And a lot of the time when I, when I speak like this, I, I listen to myself and I go, Hey, it's time to apply that again. You know, I've had a lot of life lessons over and over, but we have to be teachable. Like there is no ultimate, we don't graduate from any of this shit. You know what I mean? We don't graduate. And I've, I'm so grateful that I have, I have my AA program. I mean, I know we're not supposed to like shout it off the rooftops, but I got to tell you, <laughs> I wish everybody had a 12 step. God, it's helped me. It's the only thing that's kept me sober. Mm. It's the only thing that keeps me accountable. Because truthfully, what I want to do, what what I really want to do is have five martinis, go to Las Vegas, play slot machines, have like five dicks around me, <laughs> and fucking play cards and win money and do drugs and be a fucking freak. That's what that's what I really want to do. <laughs> And have Twinkies as well. I well, mean, actually, love bites, not Twinkies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, so that that's like that's like what I want to do. And that's a lot of distraction. A it, lot of those things, you know, you know, it's, well, it's, it's like pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's temporary. Like, it's temporary, but it's like I like pleasure. I like the way things taste and smell and feel, and you know, it's like I feel very deeply. You know, it's like that's that that's that alcoholic drug addict in me. That it's like it's never enough. And, you know, that's why I love my husband because he's just this beautiful soul that he hurts too. 
you know, he's got his stuff too. But he's like this person that just, he's just so like calm and he's, he sits by me, you know, and he's, he's, he's always stood by me and he, I know he admires me and I admire him. I respect our similarities and I respect our differences. And that's why we stayed married for, we're together for 21 years. Really quick. I want to end with gratitude because there's so much that we have talked about today. And there's, you know, there's a lot of things that we put in our life that can distract us for, from, you know, our real issues. What has centered you? And I wanted to talk about gratitude with you because it sounds like at the end of the day, you can escape all the chaos and you can go to a special place. And we can we just end there? Yeah. There's two things that come to mind. One is motherhood, being a mother to my two beautiful children and the feeling that I get hearing them laugh watching them do their homework, you know, being proud of themselves when they finish something, seeing them go through this pandemic right now, um, staying positive, their laughter. And that's one thing that just, I'm so grateful for. I can't even describe that. It's so deep and so beautiful. Um, And the second thing is the gratitude um, that I found a purpose and that's in, that's in my baking. 15 years ago, I was making a key lime cheesecake. This is right when I was pregnant with Lola and I was mixing the batter and my grandma up in heaven, I swear to God, she was a baker. I heard her say to me, she was a little Jewish woman. She was so cute. She was kind of like overweight and she had fake teeth. She was so funny. And she said, I swear, right over my shoulder, I heard her voice say, your fortune's in your food. Your fortune's in your food. And I was like, who is talking to me? I'm like, that's May. That's my grandma May. What do you mean? My fortune's in my food? Like, what do you mean? Like my money fortune? Like, what do you mean? But no, it, she meant, I think, your good fortune is in your food. And that moment that I was making that key lime cheesecake, I suddenly had the absolute, like I had to bake for people. It was not an option anymore. It was like, I had, I was like, all right, I've always been obsessed with desserts and food, but I need to bake for other people. I I was envisioning millions of people eating food that I would make them. I didn't know what what form it would be. There was no company at the time. There was nothing like that. It was more like this necessity that I have to serve people and watch them eat the food, vicariously eat through them, um, watch them just have pleasure on their faces eating it. Like I can't overeat desserts because I feel ill if I do, but I'm going to watch you eat these desserts and just like get off on it. And I found my purpose. That's, that is my purpose. Like when you came here today to do this interview, I had to feed you. You did. I, I got had... up at 6.30 to make chicken soup. For me? Yes. Oh my God. Yes. It and was delicious. Thank you. But you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's, that's what I, that, that's a purpose. So I feel like I'm grateful for finding the purpose. Isn't that what we're all really searching for? Is some, we want the feeling of purpose. 
Because the opposite feeling of purpose is uselessness, Mm. you know, emptiness. So that's why you came up with Love Bites, your food company? Well, that was that was just going to happen because I just was like, okay, <laughs> time to feed people. Well, what do I do? And just step by step by step, I was like, I got to make desserts. Okay. And then I discovered these little molds at Michael's, little heart molds. I'm like, oh, little cheesecakes. Okay. Oh, that's a good concept. Well, I'm, I'm doing portion control. This is perfect. It was perfect. And that's, and I called my best friend from seven years old, Tiffany Miller, who has been through everything with me. We are, and I've been through everything with her and we're women on business and God, are we proud of it. You know, I know this, um, I need people to eat and like moan. Like I, that's what I live for. When someone goes, "Mm, that's so good. Something happened, like I get a visceral reaction. Well, I kind of did. I I had that reaction when I was eating your soup. And then right before I was setting up the microphone, she's like, here's some pumpkin dolce. Dolce Brown butter, pumpkin dolce de leche cake. Yeah. So yeah, I finished that too. Yeah. And the last bite was so moist and delicious and pumpkin-ish. Well, just so our listeners know, it wasn't like just chicken noodle soup. It was like the most organic, <laughs> flavorful soup you will ever taste Aww. with like little flecks of carrot in it. Yeah. Like not, not like a whole carrot, like little shreds of carrots uh-huh. that you could barely, it was amazing. Thank you. Yeah. So deli- and matzo balls in it. Yeah. So it was, I, I felt your love. If they want more information on Love Bites, where do they go? Lovebitesbycarney.com. Oh, I yeah. love that. Yeah. And speaking of social media, uh, where w- can they follow your journey, Miss Wilson? Well, I'm very open about everything. Um, and you can follow me on, on Instagram because that's really where I, I enjoy Instagram a lot, actually. I, I mean, I love it. I love pictures and videos. I've been doing a lot of live cooking videos and, you know, live videos singing with Lola and, uh, you know, just connecting with people and they're, I've got a healthy following right now. You know, I'm almost at a hundred thousand followers and I've, I've earned every follower. I mean, I've never bought a follower. They're, they're, they're enjoying it and I enjoy them. It's a, it's a good symbiotic thing. You know, I mean, Carney I know 68. Carney 68 on, Insta. on Instagram. Yeah. Carney 68 and Twitter, oh, Twitter pisses me off. But, um, I, I think that just sharing it, just the comments, that's what I, I post the picture and I look and I read and I, I gauge it by what people say, because people are, are very, people are more engaged than you think. And people are just, just desperate to feel better these days. They just want their spirits lifted. And they just want to know that there's somebody out there feeling like them and We've got to celebrate something right now because there's so much shit happening. We've got to celebrate something. And that's why I love you say we end this with gratitude. So I'm grateful if I can post, uh, you know, something and someone says, thank you for this because you made me smile. Mm. Thank you for this because now, you know, now I'm going to reach out to my dad who I miss. Now I'm going to, you know, hug my child. You know, now I'm going to cook for my husband. Now I'm going to take a walk. It is, that's why I do it. 
And I know it might sound stupid or you might not even believe me when I tell you that, but I swear to God it is. I believe you. Yeah. You're, you have no reason to lie and you're pretty uh, uncensored. So <laughs> <laughs> why make that up? It's well, true. I always enjoy watching your live streams. Uh, you're, you know, you uh, say it like it is and you're never afraid that I can gauge uh, to say the truth. There's a lot of F-bombs, I know. I, do, I, I mean, I actually was good during this because every word, I am horrible. <laughs> it's my favorite thing. I love swearing. It's okay. Oh my God, I love it so much. <laughs> well, I think we took a lot from this interview and I'm honestly just honored that we had this. And um, I've really enjoyed our friendship over the last year. So it's uh, it's been it's been fun. So Carney Wilson, thank you for being you, being true to yourself. Uh, thank you for inspiring me and my 15 year old self. This will be the 25th year anniversary of your talk show. Wow. Uh, so 25 years later. Oh my God, I feel ancient. Oh, that wasn't my point. But <laughs> I feel ancient. Holy God. Oh my God. Well, I appreciate you because yeah. I think you're doing great things. And, and, I, and you know what? You've been through a lot too. Yeah. You've been through a lot too. You're very deep. I, I look forward to knowing you more too. Awesome. Well, uh, Carney Wilson, thank you for being on season four of Jonah and the Well. I'm honored. Thank you. My interview with Carney Wilson was honestly a dream come true. I have followed her career all of my life, and I was so honored to share her underwater moment with you. Carney has reminded me that life is truly a journey, and we need to embrace who we are and who we are becoming along the way. So don't forget to be patient with yourself. Carney is truly an inspiration, and I just want to say thank you to all of you for listening to today's show. Jonah and the Well is a lasting media production and is hosted by Josh Skinner. The show is produced by Ben Delameter and Jonas Litton. Our executive producers are John Fender, Jason Barrett, and Josh Skinner. You can rate and review our show wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are key to keep Jonah and the Well on the charts where people can find our show. To learn more, visit us at jonahandthewell.show and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Jonah and the Well Podcast. We want to hear your underwater moment, so reach out and use the hashtag MyUnderwaterMoment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Jonah and the Whale.